You're listening to the Art of Living Well podcast with Father Ian Van Heusen. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Art of Living Well podcast. This episode, Father Ian's talking about preparation for marriage. How do we prepare ourselves for marriage? Yes, financial advice and communication skills are important, but we also need to meditate on the scripture and learn to connect with the Father's voice. In this marriage prep session, he gives a reflection based on the perfection of the Holy Family. So the big thing I want to get into is to start off, one of the big things like I'm super motivated about and trying to get people to understand the importance of is meditating on God's word, right? So God's word is effective. It's sharper than a two-edged sword as we hear in other parts of scripture. And there's this sense that if we don't know scripture, St. Jerome says, if we don't know scripture, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. But I would add something else as well. So ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ, but it's also ignorance of who we are. It's ignorance because what it, what happens is the scripture it shows us the pattern of our existence. It shows us the pattern of our wisdom. Like, think about this for a second. What is the source of your wisdom? Now, of course, your parents and your family are going to be helpful. But, like, when you think about it, what are the things that you're paying attention to 24-7? Like, is your source of wisdom, like, Kim Kardashian? I mean, Kanye West just converted. But, I mean, but seriously, like, is your... <laughs> is, like, your source of wisdom, like, Netflix or... Is it God's word? Now, I'm not saying you have to sit and read the Bible 24-7 like all the time. But like seriously, what is the source? Because the reality is, is we all have to have wisdom. For us to experience wisdom, it often comes from outside of us. It comes from a source that's a little bit beyond our intentionality. So when we pray with God's scriptures, when we connect with it, we see the patterns of our existence. In fact, Jordan Peterson, I don't know if you've been following a lot Jordan Peterson's content on YouTube, but he, he's been doing a lot of lectures on the Bible, particularly on the patterns and showing the psychological patterns found within the Old Testament, found within the New Testament, how these stories are archetypes of our lives. So that in mind, what I want to do to get into the theology of marriage is I want to dive into Scripture. So the first thing is, it was interesting, before they were talking about there is no perfect marriage, there is no perfect couple. Well, for a lot of us, that's true. But there actually was a perfect family and there was a perfect couple. So the perfect family was the holy family. And it's really fascinating when you really look at like what were the details that the gospel writers, that the Holy Spirit chose to focus on? Because it's actually not that much. Like you could seriously go home and between Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, you could probably read within an hour all that we know about the holy family. And probably even less than that. It would actually, we're going to get into three stories but the reality is, is the central stories of the Holy Family, they're not that long and there's not that much detail. But what they are is, is they're incredibly rich. I believe they, they involve central moments like in our marriages and in our families. And then what we're going to do is we're going to tease out some of the theology that we see present within some of these primary accounts. So the normal places where we hear about the Holy Family is Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel in the beginning chapters. So we know from doctrine, the Blessed Virgin Mary was born without the stain of original sin. So the Blessed Virgin Mary is the perfect disciple. She's not clouded by sin. So when we read the passages about her, we're seeing an icon of perfection. We also know that our Lord Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man. He became man to set us free. So the the doctrine of the incarnation is that Jesus is the perfect son. He's the perfect child. He is perfection in all in all possibilities perfect knowledge fully god saint joseph he's okay he's a saint but he's not as high as the other two so he's the only one that maybe he had some sin he had some things to work through but even then we're going to see saint joseph was the the few little bit we know about him he really rises to the occasion 
So let's jump in a little bit to the scriptures. So we're going to start off with the Annunciation. So what is the Annunciation? So in the beginning of Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, there's two announcements. There's one to Zechariah and then one to the Blessed Virgin Mary. We're going to focus on the, when the angel appears to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And this is Luke chapter 1, verses 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a town of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming to her, he said, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. So this is really interesting. So he starts off, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. Hail, full of grace. So if we know the Hail Mary, it's the angelic salutation. So the angel comes to her and says, Hail, full of grace. So the big thing, first of all, the Lord wants to speak to each one of you, right? So there's the sense that there's a dramatic vision that the Blessed Virgin Mary experiences where the angel appears to her. But in your working of your inspirations, in your thoughts, feelings, and desires, in your daily thinking, the Lord wants to speak his word of inspiration to your heart. But the reality is sin closes us off, right? So he says, hail full of grace. When we confess our sins, when we're striving to live in a state of grace, when we're overcoming mortal sin, when we're overcoming venial sin, our Lord says the same thing to each one of us. He looks at you and he loves you and he says, hail full of grace. But if you're not striving, if you're not overcoming mortal sin, now I don't want to be judgmental of folks, but I know it's really common with a lot of married couples these days when they're engaged is they kind of like, it's like this trial period. Like, we're going to try this out before we get married. We're going to live together. We're going to try to see if we're compatible. And, and, and we maybe share in marital intimacy before we're married. I would encourage you right now, change course on that. Like, if you have six months until your marriage, strive to live as brother and sister. Maybe move out if you moved in together. Whatever it might be. But strive to be like the Blessed Virgin Mary. Because what the Lord wants to do is he wants to speak his word of inspiration. But if you're not persevering in a state of grace, like he's not going to come to you. He's not going to reveal his glory. He only reveals his glory to those who are persevering in a state of grace. So he comes to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And he says, hail full of grace. But she was greatly troubled at what was said and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. That's fascinating. Perfection, Right. Blessed Virgin Mary is perfect. She's troubled, and she pondered what sort of greeting this might be. You know, it's, it's a fascinating part of our human existence, is that often we're going to be faced with struggles. And so what I would say to you guys is anticipate some struggle coming up. Like, one of the things is on a good day, when you're rested, when you feel happy, when you feel... Plan for the dark days. You're going to have times where things are going to trouble your heart. Not because, like you somehow messed up or you're somehow like off on the wrong path. Now that does sometimes happen. Sometimes uh, the negative consequence of our actions we have to experience. But even if we're perfect, like the Blessed Virgin Mary, there are going to be things that trouble our hearts. There are going to be questions that we have. Questions are good. But the question is, what do you do with those? Like with your questions, do you turn to the Lord? Do you turn to the authority of the church? Or do you turn to Netflix? Of course, hopefully you don't turn to Netflix because really like what answers does that provide? Like, are you asking those deep questions? So the Blessed Virgin Mary is pondered what sort of, then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his David, his father. And he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. And, his, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. 
But Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I have no relations with a man? So she asked the angel. She pondered. So it's interesting if we contrast. Zechariah also asks the angel, How can this be? But his question is different. It's not full of faith. It's not full of hope. See, it's interesting when it comes to questions. I don't know if you guys have ever worked with like little kids. But like, you can tell a lot of times when like with little kids, I was a teacher, and when they're asking a question because like they want to know the answer, like they're hungry for more, or like there's sometimes there's a kid who's just asking a question because he, he wants to avoid the topic or he wants to avoid what he has to do, and he's just kind of challenging your authority. See, that's the difference. Zachariah is kind of challenging authority, but Mary is open to the work of the Holy Spirit. So, the angel said to her in reply, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. This is the sixth month for her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible for God. Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done unto me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. You got to kind of ask yourself, like, what would happen in your in your relationship right now? Like, hypothetically, like, if you're the Blessed Virgin Mary, if your spouse, if, if you're the woman, and you're the Blessed Virgin Mary, and right now the Lord comes to you and says, I want you to bear my, my son, the, the child of God, through the work of the Holy Spirit. If we actually are honest with this, ourselves, a lot of us would probably be like, oh, heck no. Like, what are people going to think? Like, like, are we really open to God's will? Now, that's a dramatic thing. Obviously, none of us is going to have the Son of God as our child. But we have to ask ourselves, are we open to God's will? Now, I'll tell you a little bit of a story. So, my army family. So, I, a little bit about myself. So, my family is from western New York, but my dad joined the army when I was about one. And so, there was three of us. And when my dad entered, um, the recruiter was asking my mom, she's like, the recruiter was like, so will you give your husband permission to enter the army? And my mom said, under one condition, that is, I want to go to Europe. I want to, like, travel to Europe. And the recruiter was like, oh, heck yeah. Because I don't know if you know much about military, but most spouses are like, I want to stay close to my family. My mom was like, oh, no, I want to go on an adventure. I want to, like, see the world. So we went off to Europe. The, the recruiter was like, oh, yeah, we can get you on the first flight. I mean, not the first flight. but So we got that trip to Europe. But it was interesting, as we moved from place to place, in the military culture, a lot of those spouses would have this kind of like placard thing like they would hang on the wall and it would say, home is where the army sends me. And then it would list underneath that all of the different places you had been deployed. So, you know, home was where the army sent you. So for us, it was, it was Panama, it was Germany, it was Kentucky, um, it was um, West Point. Then they, were, they went off to Kansas and now they're in Fort Bragg, uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. But there was always that sense with the army that you had to be at a, million, at a moment's notice being willing to like pick up and move. Now, maybe you guys don't have those kinds of jobs like that you're going to have to pick up and move, but I think that's a great metaphor for surrendering to God's will. So in the same way, I actually have a placard in my office now that people got me because I joked around about this as a priest where home is where the bishop sends me because I have to like pick up and move on a moment's notice to other parishes and things like that. But the question is, like, do you have that kind of freedom right now? Like, or are you, like, do you have your blinders on? That's, like, the first thing. Like, do you have it all planned out? I mean, when I work with couples, sometimes it's, like, they, they leave no sense of mystery. Like, no sense of God's providence. Like, okay, in exactly 3.2 years, we're going to have our first child. And, like, 
And we know that because we're going we're gonna to use birth control. We're going to plan it exactly. And then we're going to get our house. It's going to be exactly like you know, this kind of square footage. And they've got it all figured out. I know maybe I'm being a little sarcastic, but are you like so much on your blinders? Like it's about me. It's about my plan, how I'm going to figure this out. Now, of course, we need to plan for the future. You know, I'm a big fan of Dave Ramsey, you know, the baby steps. I don't know if you, Dave Ramsey, I don't know if we recommend that, but you got to get those, you know, the financial planning. I'm in, I'm in, I'm about all of that. But the reality is you have to leave a possibility for the Holy Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit's going to come to you and you're going to have that prayer life. You're going to be reading God's scripture and he's going to come to you like he came to the Blessed Virgin Mary and say, there's something I, I'm calling you to. There's something I want you to do. I want you to be generous. I want you to open your heart. And then you, you can be like the Blessed Virgin Mary and say, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done unto me according to thy word. Like, are you open to the Holy Spirit in that regard? So the next icon of perfection from the scriptures is really kind of fascinating, is the flight to Egypt. So it's from Matthew's Gospel. And I'll flip to that. So if you remember the story you remember the historical accounts. There's the birth of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. And then he gets into the visit of the Magi. So the Magi come and they're bearing frankincense, gold and myrrh. Then, interestingly enough, right after they leave, as they're leaving, it's hard to say exactly the timeline, but St. Joseph has a dream and they, they pick up everything and go to Egypt in a moment. It's fascinating. I will say this. If you look at it with the, the visit of the Magi and then the flight to Egypt, right now, if God is giving you some prosperity, anticipate that there's going to be a hard time, right? So right before they have to flight to Egypt, the Lord provides for them. He gives them gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So it's interesting, like they're a low-income family, they're a working-class family, but man, he's just giving them like a huge prize to like, so that they have what they need to travel to Egypt. So the, the Magi have visited, and now we have the flight to Egypt. It's uh, Matthew chapter 2, and we're starting at verse 13. When they had departed... Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Joseph rose and took the the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. He stayed there until the death of Herod, that the word the Lord had said through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Think about this for a second. Like, if, like, tonight, well, let's say when you're married, because... Hopefully you're not sleeping, you're not in the same bed tonight, but if that's a whole other subject. But let's say once you're married and like you're, 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 in the, you're, you're in the same bed together and like in the middle of the night, like your husband wakes you up and says, honey, we got to pack our bags. We got to get going and we're going to go to a whole nother country that you've never been to. Like we're getting on a flight today and we're going to Europe. Like I'm willing to bet money that half of us would be like, you're crazy, right? Now, I, I think there's a part of it. I think we have to kind of imagine well, what was their relationship like before this? Like, there, there had to have been a lot of work that would have been done. And we're going to flesh that out a little bit. But before we get into that, I want to tell a little bit of a story about Panama. So we were in Panama during the invasion. And now all of us here, I, I'm pretty much sure, everybody here was probably little kids. Because so, I, I was a little kid. Um, I was, it was 89, so calculate how old you were then. So we invaded Panama country. And so I was a little bit of a, I was a little bit, a little kid. And it was interesting is that in the midst of that challenge, like there's kind of with trauma, with challenges, there's kind of a choice that has to be made. Like, how are you going to handle it? 
Because interestingly enough, around a late, later period, I was, I was talking with a young couple, and she was talking about her experience of 9-11, September 11th. And she said for her, like, September 11th was incredibly traumatizing because they had all of these practices. She was afraid about terrorism. Like, there was a lot of fear in her family. There was a lot of anxiety. But I'll tell you this. My experience of Panama, I literally watched the downtown burn like over the hill. Like I could see like the, the helicopters coming in over the hill and like my school is a helicopter pad. And for like little Ian, who was like in third grade, Panama was not at all traumatizing. It was like the most exciting part of my life. To this day, when I think about it, even though I know that like it was terrible, like people died, like it was war. My experience as a little kid was excitement. And it wasn't because like I'm just kind of crazy or weird. It was partly how my parents and my family handled it. Because my mom, she had an attitude. Like, she was not going to give in to fear. Yes, she was afraid. But she was not going to give in to the voices of fear and confusion. She was, she was going to guard us from the reality that, like, we could be killed. Like, we didn't really know what was going to happen. Because the Panamanians might have invaded the military bases or tried to take the families hostage. We didn't exactly know what was going to go down. And my mom always tried to put up a front of courage to be strong in the midst of these trials. Interestingly enough, my grandmother called up one day, like during the invasion, and my grandmother was like panicking and freaking out, but my mom always tried to stay steady. I imagine how did that take place with my parents? My parents aren't perfect. They had a lot of difficulties in their marriage, especially a little bit after this. But one of the, to their credit at that time, is they worked like a team, right? So when I see families struggle, so I do a lot of marriage counseling. A lot. I mean, I was just working with a husband like the other day. And like last week, I probably worked with a couple of couples. And what I often see is they don't work together as a team. So that's the thing is, is when St. Joseph wakes up the Blessed Virgin Mary in the middle of the night, they're a team. Like he's invested her. Like she knows that she can trust him. She trusts his judgment. Like they, they, they have that sense of simpatico that they're working together, right? You got to believe that's the case because if we really, if you're working as a team, then you're like, okay, I trust you. Let's, let's get up. Let's go. But if you're not working together as a team, what's going to happen? Like we know, we see it with marriages. Like, you know, you have the kid who's going to play one parent off the other, right? That's a classic thing that I don't know if any of you guys did that. We did that a little bit. Like my dad was always the yes guy. So like, we'd always go like, if you always had that card in the back of your pocket, like if you need it, like pull, you know, go and ask dad, Hey dad, can I do this? And, and that's like somewhat humorous, but for the most part, like you've got to be working together as a team. I would say there's three kinds of relationships that I've seen. The first is obviously problematic and I'm willing to bet money that none of you are in this particular situation, but it does happen. And I would call it like the roommates, like that whole friends with benefits type thing, right? I've seen it recently where I was working with somebody where for all intensive purposes, it's like the, the couple there's children from a different marriage for all intensive purposes. It's like they were roommates living together and they had no agreements. Like there was no sense of commitment. It was just, and the problem with all that confusion is like, were they married or were they not married? Like what was exactly going on? And all that confusion really created a whole sense of chaos because like they both weren't committed to each other. There wasn't this sense of like, building each other up, like working together. Like in some circumstances, it almost seemed like they were enemies. So sometimes they'd be friends, sometimes they'd be enemies, but kind of like you would like with a roommate, like sometimes you love them, sometimes you hate them, but they're just like a roommate. So that obviously is a problem, that roommate. The second one is a little bit trickier. 
And I don't think anybody goes into marriage with this mentality, but maybe they start to develop this mentality. It's like a contract. Like, so I'm going to give you 50%, or I'm going to give you whatever percentage I can think of. And then out of that, out of this contract, I'm going to get certain rights and obligations. And so we treat our marriages, we treat our relationships like a, a contract. Like, so I get something, you get something, we're both happy. Like you would a business transaction, you would the other relationships. Obviously, when we, when we flesh it out, when we're like intentional about it, when we think about it, we're like, of course, that's not what marriage is, right? Like, we know that. Like, I'm sure all of your families are talking with you. All those great, like, proverbs that families say, like, you know, you don't give 50%. Each person gives 100%. Or the, every generation is slightly different, right? So, like, when in the 80s it was, you give 50-50. And then, like, the next generation said, no, it's not 50-50, it's 100-100, whatever it might be. However the proverb is being spun in your family. But the idea, you recognize, like, you've got to be all in. You've got to be a team. And where that comes from is that marriage is going to be the most important. So there's two relationships that are going to be the most important relationships that you're going to have. Like you've got to go all in on. You've got to give everything you have to. Your relationship with God and your relationship with your family and your spouse. Like you have to be all in. You have to be investing in it. You have to be thinking about it. And that can be tough. That can be a challenge. But it's going to require everything that you are. See, but the thing is, like, why wouldn't it? Like, why would it be easy? Like, why would we even want it to be easy, right? Like, if you think of everything that you enjoy in life, the things you enjoy the most are the things that are the most challenging. That, like, you rise to the challenge. You conquer it. Of course your marriage is going to be the same way. And then as you build that team, that's going to be fun. That's going to be exciting. I mean, think about this switching gears a little bit, championship, basketball championship, or whatever, uh, baseball championship, football, whatever. Imagine the team that wins the championship goes through the whole season, and they blow everybody out. Like, they, no, no team is even close to them. They win every game easily. They come to the championship, it's a blowout. We all recognize, like, how would he even watch? I mean, nobody, like the ratings would go down. Like there's something about a challenge that we're hardwired. Like we love that sense of challenge. And if we're not being challenged to grow, we soon stagnate. So that's the thing is, is really view that as you got to put in the work. And then like the Holy Family, when you're, when you're in that time of need, when you need to get up and go, you have that freedom because you've been investing. And, and what we call that in marriage is a covenant. Our relationship with God is a covenant and our marriage is a covenant that we give all of ourselves to, that it's, it's a complete engagement where we pour ourselves into. So, continuing on a little bit. Um, the next part. This one's, this one's actually the most interesting. So I actually, I meditate on these with couples in my marriage prep, so I like walk them through them. This last one to this day, I, I'd, it's fascinating because I'll, I'll get into it in a second. I still don't know what to make of it. I'd be curious, like, afterwards, your guys' thoughts on this. It's one of the most interesting parts of Scripture, and it's, um, I believe it's in Matthew. Let me double check. All right. Nope, it's Luke. All right. It's a little bit later, and it's the boy Jesus in the temple. So it's, it's the only picture we get of Jesus as a young, as a kid. In fact, my cameraman, you're, how old are you, Ryan? You're 12? So think, Ryan, like Jesus' age. So Jesus is 12 in, in this particular passage. So it's um, verses 41, it's chapter four, 2. 
chapter 2. Each year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. So the big thing in ancient Israel is you take your whole family. You go up to the temple of Jerusalem. You're offering sacrifice. But, you know, you're traveling with your whole clan. You're traveling with everybody. And, like, you're going there annually. And you're walking, of course. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to a festival custom. After they completed its days, as they were returning, the boy Jesus remained behind in Jerusalem. But his parents did not know it. So picture 12-year-old Ryan in the back. He decides that he's going to stay behind in Jerusalem. He's just, I'm going to stay behind. Um, so, thinking that he was in the caravan, they journeyed for a day and looked for him among their relatives and acquaintances. But not finding him, they returned to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. It's really interesting. So going back to this whole thing of questions, if you ever work with people like in an educational setting, if you ever work with kids, the ability to ask good questions is, is actually incredibly difficult. Like you have to really know a subject well to be able to ask good questions. So there's this sense that Jesus comes into the temple. This is the only picture we have of him from his birth until he's 30. And so first of all, has he disobeyed like Mary and Joseph? It's like kind of hard to say. We know it's perfection, so we know he hasn't disobeyed. But is there something about like 12-year-olds or like middle schoolers and high schoolers? It's like they got to kind of step out on their own. They got to like try those boundaries. And Jesus is perfect. Mary's perfect. But yet we have this 12-year-old Jesus for three days. Like he's just hanging out in the temple. Kind of crazy. Now don't do that, Ryan. But Doug in the back's like, don't you ever like think you're going to spend three days all right, so when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been looking for you with great anxiety. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus advanced in wisdom and age and favor before God and man. So, a few things I want to bring out. It's fascinating. Like, it's, it's important that we have a good family structure. It's important that we have our friends, that we have people we confide in. But as I was mentioning before, there's this idea of freedom, spiritual freedom, that Jesus starts to get at. So, one of the phrases you may never have heard of Jesus before, it's really kind of startling. It's in Luke's Gospel. It's Luke 14... 25. Now, you probably, you probably have never really thought about this before, and it's going to be a little bit startling, but it's fascinating on the same hand. So Luke 14, 25. Great crowds were traveling, and he turned and addressed them. If anyone comes to me, listen to this, if anybody comes to me without hating his father, hating his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus says to hate your father, hate your mother. It's fascinating. There's all kinds of things. Like people always like point this picture of like this, like kind of like the, the fluffy clouds, like with like the pastel colors, Jesus. Then he says these things, like he says other places, like I came not to bring peace, but the sword. That's a whole nother conversation. But he says to hate your father and mother. See, one of the dangers you're going to have is attachments. So paradoxically, if you follow Jesus' words, not that you hate, it's not like he's saying like, you got to have some kind of weird, like, like 
like you sit down and you think about your parents and like you get all mad and you get all frustrated. No, it's, he's, he's using hyperbole. So Jesus' style in Luke's gospel is he often uses exaggeration, which if you know Middle Eastern people, I hope, I don't think we have any Middle Eastern people. I have a lot of friends who are Lebanese, a lot of family friends. We know a lot of Palestinians. And the style of the Middle East a lot of times is exaggeration. And, and, and you see that a lot with Jesus and Luke's gospel, right? So he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Like nobody ever cuts off their right hand because it causes them to sin. It's that sense of exaggeration. But what he's getting at is so some of the things that are going to cripple you in your marriages is your attachments. Like, do you make your spouse like you're all in all or is God your all in all? So like if you make your spouse your God, guess what? Your spouse can't bear that weight. Like God has to be your God and your spouse has to be your helpmate. So there's a sense like how do you have freedom in your marriage and in your other relationships? So it's often the case. I often counsel people this when I'm working with spiritual direction. I said, if you treated your mom and dad like they were a complete stranger, you'd actually probably be a lot nicer to them than if they were your own parents sometimes, right? So like if you think about it, right? Like some of the same things your parents will do that'll drive you crazy or that your spouse will do. Like if you go to work or if you're out in the public square and somebody does them, you can kind of forgive it or you can like kind of look past it. Because it's often what it is, is there's this sense of attachments, so when the saints talk about the finding of child Jesus in the temple, there's a sense that Jesus recognizes that while the Holy Family is perfect, his true mission and his true relationship is with the Father. He has the spiritual freedom. And imagine the spiritual freedom of the Blessed Virgin Mary. She sees him go off, persecuted, be crucified, and she surrenders to that. Like, how would you feel if your child went off to be a martyr? I have a great story actually tied with this. So I talked about how my mom never freaked out with deployments, but that's not true. So my dad was deployed a lot. He went to four different combat zones. My mom did freak out once when my, my, when, when on a deployment, but it wasn't my dad's deployments. It was my sister's deployment to Iraq. And I, I wasn't there for the conversation. So hopefully I'm not, I mean, hopefully I'm doing it justice, but my sister and my sister was like, say it. Say what you're scared of. And my mom's like, I don't want to say it. She's like, you're scared that I'm going to die, right? My mom's like, no, I don't even want to face that. He's like, no, you have to. Like, you're afraid that I'm going to die in combat. And my mom, she, she acknowledged it. She recognized it. She was afraid that my sister was going to be killed in Iraq. And she worked through it and she overcame it. She came to that place of freedom. Because the reality is, is like that attached place where my mom's freaking out, that didn't help my sister, right? Because my sister, like, if you're going into combat, you need your family like on your, your, your side. Like you need everybody supporting you. You don't need to be worried about your mom like having a meltdown. But my mom worked through it by the work of the Holy Spirit and by that relationship. And they came to that place of freedom. So we've kind of fleshed out some of the qualities of the spiritual life and even a theology of marriage. So we've talked about, like first of all, in marriage, are you open to God's will? Like, or are you opening your heart in prayer? Do you have that relationship with Jesus Christ? Is your relationship a covenant where everybody's all in, where everybody's investing in the team, that team mentality? And then finally, are you growing in freedom, recognizing that God is your God and that your relationship is secondary to your relationship with God? Do you have those right priorities and that freedom so that when the Lord calls you to do something, when you're when you're moved by the work of the Holy Spirit, that as a couple, you can respond to God's will. 
So hopefully you've enjoyed this, this bit of a conversation. I, I really appreciate it. I'll be praying for you guys. And my, my prayer is not just that you have good marriages, but that you're saints at the heart of Christ, that you're on fire with like divine love. So when we come to the end of the days, like we may not see each other for the next 40 years. We may not see each other ever again. But when we see each other in heaven, we'll talk about how, how much the Lord has done in our lives, how much the Lord has worked his power and his glory. And, that, and hopefully, you know, you see your children's children and you have that long life. But even if you don't, even if you suffer, even if there's tragedy, clinging to the Lord, drawing close to the Lord and letting him open your heart. 